Praise the Lord. Remember last week we left off with lesson 60, and we're in chapter 21, and I brought forth in that lesson that we as the people of God are to be streams of living water in our land today. In the first century Israel, at the time of Yeshua, Yeshua's rejection was corrupt. It was a place where the true worship of God was not found among all the leaders of Israel. And I couldn't help but draw the parallel to our own country because it's much the same today. Our land, our country began a place blessed by God where people wanted nothing more than to worship God. But now we've turned away from God. Even in our churches, we allow abominable things within their walls. And our country is a desert wasteland. And that's uh, Sar Shalom in these last days is supposed to be that pool of living water where the world can come. Those who will bow their knee can come and be refreshed with living water. Well, last week we were covering the overturning of the tables of the money changers and those who were selling doves. The tables were overturned, the Pharisees' uh, rejection of Yeshua. And we're going to look at that today. But right after this overturning of the table of the money changers, we're going to read this in verse 14 of 21. It says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, he replied Yeshua. Have you not read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And so immediately following Yeshua's rebuke of those selling in the house of the Lord, immediately following uh, his telling the priests that they had made his house a den of thieves, Yeshua does this. You know, and I, I always say that there's nothing in the Word of God that's there by chance. And so I always ask myself, now why on earth would Matthew put this story here? And why on earth would he put the story of healing sandwiched between these rebukes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Well, the reason is Yeshua is doing what he came here to do. He's actually doing the will of God in the temple of God. Because the inner courts of the temple were called the Azarah. It comes from the Hebrew word Ezreka. It means help. The temple, these inner courts of the temple, where the people were, was where the people would come when they needed help. The temple is where the people would come for prayer. Yeshua said last week, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Yeshua begins to heal those who are blind and those who are lame. And as he does, the teachers of the law and the priests come to reject him for what he's doing. And because the children are calling him the king, the son of David. So, first of all, to understand this, you have to understand that those in charge of the temple are really on high alert at this time of the year. Because many possible messiahs have risen in the past and caused trouble. The second and the other point that you have to understand is that they are indignant. And the reason they're so indignant is that Yeshua is in the temple doing what God had ordained them to do. 
The priests and the teachers of Israel were to do these things. Yeshua is teaching those there, not so much with his words today, but with his actions, with the kindness of God, with the mercy of God, with the compassion of God for his people. He's shepherding God's people Israel. Those with afflictions come to the temple for healing. They came to the, these people were supposed to heal. They were supposed to come to the house of God for help. And Yeshua says to many who are healed, your faith has made you whole. We've read that in the past. Telling me that the people of Israel, for the most part, were of little faith. And the priests were responsible for cleansing the people, but the faith level of the people was the responsibility of the teachers. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law. You see, they were the ones responsible for shepherding the people. They were the shepherds of Israel. And Yeshua now is in the house of God doing what they were to do. The people of Israel at the time of Yeshua were told before, we've read before, were like sheep without a shepherd. Not only that, I want to read the words of Jeremiah because he sums up this situation hundreds of years before. And there's nothing new under the sun. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 20 says, The harvest is past. Summer is ended and we're not saved. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed, I mourn. Horror grips me. There's no balm in Gilead. There's no physician there. Why then there is no healing for the wound of my people? The words of the prophet Jeremiah spoken hundreds of years before about the state of Judah. There's no physician there. There's no healing. There wasn't because the physicians, those who were responsible, weren't following God. They weren't shepherding the people. The same is true here. And then if we read a little earlier in the same chapter, Jeremiah gives us the other half of the problem. He says, how can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord when actually... The lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped. Since they have rejected the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do they have? You see, the same is true here. The teachers of Israel had handled the word of God falsely. And because of that, the faith of the people is not what it should be. And now, in just a matter of days, they're about to reject the living word. And the truths of the word of God that Yeshua has been teaching, they're going to miss the hour of their visitation because they mishandled Daniel and Zechariah. The teachers in Israel had also rejected John, who was the Elijah, we're told, who was to come. We're going to see next week as we look at the men questioning Yeshua on authority, he's going to remind them that they rejected John. They have rejected justice, mercy of the word of God. And we know this because if they hadn't, there would have been shepherds in Israel. There would have been teachers in Israel. There would have been truth and faith in Israel. And so as I said last week, the land of Israel in the first century for the poor, for the sick, for those seeking God was a desert wasteland. And Yeshua is the fountain of living water standing there in the midst of them. And they're about to reject him. And so this is the setting that we have for the rest of the chapter. Israel's without teachers, they're without physicians, and for the most part, without a priesthood. And Yeshua is responding to this. Verse 18 says this. This is another strange one to have sandwiched in here, isn't it? 
early in the morning he was on his way back to the city and he was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the road he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves and then he said to it may you never bear fruit again and immediately the tree withered and so here we are and think about the time of year we're in it's just before Pesach we're in the spring of the year figs aren't ripe until much later in the year so this is kind of a dilemma in this, for this passage over the years. People have wondered about this. But nonetheless, we have this story sandwich here, and somehow Yeshua expected some figs to be on that tree, and there were none. It's possible that he expected there would be some, some unripe figs on the tree. Or perhaps it was a mild winter, and some of the figs from the year before would be left on the tree and still would be good. When we were in Israel, I know there were unripe figs on the trees already, and, and I know that people do eat unripe figs. Anyway, whatever the case, there are none. And so what is Yeshua going to do? He's going to use this as a teaching opportunity. Many commentaries actually call this a lived-out parable. Maybe so. But anyway, he curses the fig tree and it withers. In the common explanation you hear of this in church is that Yeshua is symbolically cursing Israel and that it has not produced any fruit. You know, that may be close, particularly if we look at the preceding chapters, preceding verses, and in the latter verses of this chapter, it might be that he is referring to the leaders of Israel not having produced much fruit. As we saw last week, they had taken the house of God and used it for their own purposes, stuffing their own coffers. And you have to remember something. At this time of the year, there was a lot of money coming into the temple. There was a lot of money coming up to Jerusalem. You have the temple tax being paid. You have offerings being paid for. This is the time, this, this in the fall of the year at Sukkot was the time when the support of the temple came into the temple for the year. But if we want to understand the passage, I always like to look back and see where are the fig trees out used elsewhere in the Bible? What's the symbolism for the fig tree in the Bible? And here's what we're going to find out. It's used to describe a time of peace and blessing. Even the peace of the kingdom that's coming. Listen to what the book of Kings, how it's used as an idiom to describe the reign of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25 says, during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Bathsheba lived in safety and each man under his own vine and fig tree. So I think we all understand that Solomon was actually a shadow of the Messiah and his kingdom was a shadow of the Messianic kingdom. If you look at Solomon's kingdom, it was one of great splendor and people lived in peace and prosperity. The kingdom had the respect of the nations around it. The kings of the world came up and paid homage to Solomon. The merchants that passed through paid for the privilege of passing through. It was wealthy. This was a time of peace and prosperity. And Solomon's reign is a shadow of David's greater son, the Messiah, and his kingdom. And so the fig tree is representative of prosperity. And this prosperity at the time of Solomon's reign. And the same idiom is used to describe the reign of Messiah. If we look in Micah chapter 4 beginning with verse 1. 
We see this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem. Remember, the disciples are still expecting Yeshua to set up his kingdom. They're expecting him to do exactly what we just read here. To establish the mountain of the Lord as chief, to turn the hearts of the people and the hearts of the nations to the God of Israel. Let's read a little bit farther. He will judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. He will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Not only was it to be a time of peace and blessing for Israel, but the nations as well. And then next we get our idiom. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. And so what I want you to see is that the fig tree and ripened figs are an idiom for this time of peace and blessing and prosperity. And Zechariah will use the idiom in the same way. We'll read that real quick. Chapter 3, verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, men who are symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will grave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin from this land in a single day and in that day each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And so what I want you to see is that this fig tree is used in connection with a time of peace and blessing. And in this particular verse, we see the branch of the Lord. It says, I will bring my servant the branch. And if you look at the Targum, it makes no bones about it. It says, I will bring my anointed one, my Messiah. He'll be revealed. So that's one way it's used. The other way the fig tree is used is to describe just the opposite. If we read Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 15, it says, O house of Israel declares the Lord, I'm bringing a distant nation against you. An ancient, enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvest, your food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds. They will devour your fans and fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. So the point being, a fig tree bearing fruit is an idiom of prosperity and blessing. And it's used to describe David and Solomon's kingdom at a time when all Israel was following the Lord and there was peace and blessing in the land. And it's used this way to describe the kingdom that the disciples are expecting Messiah to set up, the Messianic kingdom. But the absence of figs on the tree is quite the opposite. In this instance, it's used as something quite different. A time where the leaders are not following the Lord and have led the people into despair. And perhaps by cursing the fig tree, Yeshua is not necessarily cursing the people of Israel, but merely telling them of the destruction that's about to come. That the mountain of the Lord at this time will not be chief among the nations, 
because as we have just seen in the last few le lessons, the mountain of the Lord is corrupt. The teachers teach falsely. There's no physician in the house of God, no shepherds in Israel. And he's, he's telling us that Yeshua came and has found no faith in Israel. He's found no teachers in Israel. The priests in Israel are not shepherding the people. It was not the same scenario as in, it, it was the same scenario as in the days of Jeremiah. And there's nothing new under the sun. A lack of faith and, uh, would certainly fit how Yeshua uh, uses the withering of the tree because he's going to use this as a lesson in faith. Let's read on. It says, when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked Yeshua. I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done for the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And so the disciples are amazed that this fig tree just withers. I'd be amazed too. Who wouldn't be amazed, right? And what Yeshua does is he's going to use this incident to teach about faith. And I, I hope that you all understand that faith as it's taught in the church, particularly some of the church, the faith movement, you might have heard the faith movement, it's got a lot of living word, and Creflo Dollar on TV, it's got all kinds of teachers. But it, faith in the Bible is quite different as it's brought forth in Scripture. Understand, you know that the word faith is the same word as believe. Believe is actually the verb. Faith is the noun. And I've heard preachers teach that it would be the same as saying faithing. The verb would be faithing. And of course, we have no word for faithing, so it's rendered believe. But in essence, they're correct, because it is, uh, in the Greek, the verb of that noun. Now, in the church, we have a whole large body of people who call themselves the faith movement. And they really define faith as the ability to believe for things in life. Name it and claim it. You believe it, you name it, you claim it, you believe it hard enough, and you will get it. That if somehow you believe and you don't doubt what you believe, you'll get the very things that you ask for. And if you don't get it, well then, I guess you just didn't have enough faith. Right? But that's not at all how faith is brought forth in the Bible. If you don't get the thing you believe for, it really has very little to do with faith. Faith as brought forth in the Bible is trusting God for what he has promised that he would do. Faith is trusting in God for what he has done already. So you have to ask yourself when you're praying for something like the faith movement would, would put forth, when you're praying for something, do you have that promise from God for that thing that you're praying for, that you're hoping for, that you're asking for? Is it within the will of God? Because if no is the answer to those questions, to those real questions, then the real answer for why you don't receive for what you've asked for has nothing to do with faith. The best example of faith in our Bible, of course, is Abraham. 
He is the father of our faith. And I want you to know, nowhere in the life of Abraham do you see him believing something for something that God hasn't already promised him for. Right? Faith is best defined for us in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11 is, is the book of, on faith. And verse 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that God made the universe. It was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You see, faith is trusting that God formed the universe. Hey, and if he can form the universe, there's nothing that he can't do for you if, and here's the big if, if it's something he's promised you and if it's his will to be done. Faith is trusting in God, though you don't see him, but you see what he's done. And you believe in him to do all that he has said. Faith is knowing what God's will is for your life and trusting him for that. And not only that, it's trusting him for it even if you don't see it and you may not even see it in your lifetime. Abraham had promises made to him that he did never seen in his lifetime. That doesn't mean they aren't coming to be. Faith does not mean that he will do what you will to be done. But it means that he'll do what he wills to be done. And if you know what his will to be done is, you can stand on that. Let's look at Abraham for a minute because Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham. Listen, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were the heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself, barren, was enabled to become the father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. So, from this one man, though as good as dead, came the descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And so faith is trusting the word of God that God is able to do exactly what he said he'll do for you. Not what you'd like him to do for you, maybe, but exactly what he said he'd do for you. Let me tell you something else. Faith is not asking for wealth in life. It's not sitting down and saying, I believe that God is going to do this for me, that he'll give me a new Mercedes. I believe it. I believe it. I won't doubt it. I believe it. Faith is not asking and believing for things of this world, but faith is doing what God asks you to do in the face of not seeing what God has promised you yet. but knowing that it's going to happen. And the writer uses Abraham as an example. I want to read um, in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I will make your name great. 
and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And I underlined some portions there. And I underlined those portions because I wanted to ask, did Abraham receive those things in his lifetime? No. Did that mean he did not have enough faith for those things? Far be it. He's the father of our faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith is not believing for what you hope for. Faith is believing what God has promised and believing even though you may not even see it in your lifetime. Now let's look at Abraham's most amazing leap of faith. In Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 it says, By faith Abraham, when God tasted him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he received Isaac back from the dead. And so Abraham believed God, and I've said this many, many times before, he believed God over everything that he knew to be true in life. Abraham We used this uh, verse last week when we talked about worship to show that Abraham's knee was bowed to God. He had so much trust in God that he set everything aside in life that he knew to be absolutely true and followed God because God had told him it's through Isaac that I will reckon your offspring. See, God tells him to offer Isaac as a burnt offering and Abraham had offered burnt offerings before. He knew that once you placed that burnt offering on the altar and lit the fire, nothing was left when you were done. That everything went up in smoke to God. There would be nothing left of Isaac. And yet, when God asks him to do it, what does he say? Hineni. Here am I, your servant. We've all read this passage before, but I want to read just a few excerpts from chapter 22 to show this man's faith. Listen to what he says in verse 5. To his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. Then listen to what he says to his son in verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. Faith is trusting God even though everything in life tells you that you're crazy for doing what you're doing. Because you know that God is God, he formed the universe, and he can do for you exactly what he promised you he'd do. Faith is knowing that if God asks something of you, then it's the best thing for you. And if he does not do something you ask for you, then not doing that is the best thing for you. Now right away, I I know I would have Christians in the faith movement disagree with me. They'll say, listen, Stan. Look, how God made Abraham wealthy. Look at these promises God gave Abraham. You see, if I have faith, I can claim these promises for myself. 
and God will bless me with this and he'll bless me with that and I can have that Mercedes I've asked for. Right? Listen, faith is trusting God for what he has promised and that does not mean that he will do for you what he did for Abraham. You hear faith preachers point to what God did for Abraham, how he blessed him, his wealth and such, and say, I believe in those promises. And they apply to you as well, but the things God did and promised Abraham are not promises to you. You can hope for them, and you can hope for them until you're blue in the face, and what you're going to get is blue in the face. Because they're somebody else's promises. Amen? Amen. Now the phrase, listen, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. Now, I don't want people going out and telling mountains to go be thrown into the sea because that's not what Yeshua is saying here. This has no prophetic meaning here. They're standing at the Mount of Olives. And you cannot say to the Mount of Olives, go throw yourself into the sea and it will do it. You know why? Because the Mount of Olives has to be exactly where it's at. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 3 says, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving to the north and half of the mountain moving to the south. Now, he's going to move the mountain, but he's not going to cast it into the sea. The Mount of Olives, according to the word of God, has to be there at the end of days. And if you stand there and tell the Mount of Olives to go throw itself into the sea till you're blue in the face, guess what you're going to get? Blue in the face. Because it has to be there according to the word of God. That's what I'm trying to tell you. No matter how impossible what you believe, this is Yeshua's point. What he, the point he's trying to make is no matter how impossible what you believe may seem, if God has spoken it to you, it will be done for those who trust in him. You may not see it in your lifetime like Abraham didn't see many things in his lifetime. Did he see a great nation in his lifetime? Did he see all the peoples of the earth being blessed through him in his lifetime? No, but it's going to be done. Right? It will be done for you whether it's done in your lifetime or whether it's not. And so if you're praying for someone's salvation, keep on praying. It may not be done in your lifetime. I know my grandma, my great-grandma, who was not around when I got saved, prayed for me every day. She didn't see it in her lifetime, but it happened. I'm standing here. Amen? So... Yeshua uses this lesson of the fig tree to teach of faith, of believing in the promises of God. And the other half of faith is walking out those promises because faith and action go hand in hand. You know, you can't always tell what someone believes by the words that they speak. But you can always tell what they believe by what they do in life. Amen? Amen? which will be the lessons of Yeshua's parable that we're going to look at next week.